Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Will the brewing El Nino save California from its searing drought? Not for long, if it shows up at all this year. I'm Greg Dalton on Climate One today. We'll talk about the drought ravaging the western United States and how people are changing the way they think about water, food, and energy. Later in the hour, we will discuss the flow of money into water into California's farms and cities. First, most people don't eat in the bathroom, but what you eat may have a bigger impact on how much water you use than your showers or how you brush your teeth. Here to talk about the drought and personal habits and other global water issues in California and beyond is Martha Davis, board vice president at the Earth Island Institute and also executive manager at the Inland Empire Utilities Agency, and Anna Miklak, faculty member in global ecology at the Carnegie Institution for Science. Please welcome them to Climate One. Anna McLeck, let's begin with you. You wrote an article recently for Deadless and talked about the five big pools of freshwater in the world. So let's start globally and then come down to California and the Bay Area. Where is this freshwater and, and how is it changing with climate change? Right, so the amount of water overall on Earth is not changing. There's only so much water and it cycles through different phases, through different forms, different areas, different locations. And only about 2.5% of the water on Earth is actually fresh water. The rest of it is saline. And of that 2.5%, about 2% is frozen. So only about half a percent overall is fresh water. And that's primarily, of course, in streams and lakes. But the vast majority of it is actually groundwater. And when you think about the amount of water that actually cycles year to year, is even a very small fraction of that. So even though the total amount of water on Earth is, of course, huge, and it doesn't really increase or, or decrease, the amount of water that we can actually use year to year is a very small fraction of a very small fraction of that total. And any changes in where that water is, what quality that water is, and what form it takes has a huge impact on our ability to use it in a, in a manageable way. So how did Boston get all our water? How did that happen? <laughs> Well, so one of the, the perhaps the ironies of the changing climate that we're living in is that dry areas tend to get drier and wet areas tend to get wetter. 
and also more of the precipitation tends to come in these extreme events. And so it's a bit of a the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, but of course more water isn't always good either because then you might have issues with flooding and so on. Right, so it's when we say that global warming means it can get wet and cold in some places and, and dry and sure. hot uh, in others. Uh, Martha Davis, the snowpack is big for water in the western United States. In fact, the west was kind of built on the back of snowpack. That's changing. The Colorado's changing. So tell us how that's, that's affecting California water, where key parts of our supply in California. Well, let's take an example just from this year. In May, we had zero snowpack. We've never had that before. That's astonishing. And if you actually look in, in towards Oregon and Washington, they had a, actually a relatively normal rainfall, but they still had zero snowpack. What does that tell you? Warming temperatures are shifting the way in which California receives precipitation. So if we, don't, if we have more rain and less snow, we've developed our water system. So when you think about the reservoirs and the way in which we move water throughout the state, through the State Water Project and through the Central Valley Project, the Los Angeles Aqueduct, the Hetch Hetchy Aqueduct, all of that is based on assumptions about snow being a major part of the storage system that releases the water slowly during the summer months and allows us to have that water come into our water supplies. If we don't have it in snowpack, it's coming through the rivers, it's coming earlier, it's coming much faster, and our systems are not really set up to take advantage of it. So that's, that's kind of the big picture on the temperature impacts. And then as you start looking at the variability that comes with, it's predicted to come with climate change, more intense storms and wet periods, longer, drier, more intense droughts. And so we look just now at the, at the last, the weather that we've had in this, in this new century, right? It's only 15 years old. We've only had two wet years in that time period. The rest of it's been actually below normal weather. And so we can begin to see at least some of the implications in these weather patterns in this drought that we're experiencing now. If you extrapolate it out to the future and it's even more intense, mega droughts like what we've seen in Australia, we have an entirely different water scenario that we're going to have to deal with, both in terms of our, our, our own communities, agriculture and urban areas, but also what it means for the environment. And uh, we want to talk about the water, food, energy nexus. Californians use somewhere, what, 80 gallons of, per person a day, something like that statewide. But I read in National Geographic the average American uses about 2,000 gallons because a lot of their water use is embedded in other products. So Martha Davis, uh, talk about we don't think about water connected to other issues. We measure uh, water that we directly use and not the water we indirectly use. That's true. I think, you know, when we get into the estimates about the water that we indirectly use, yeah, okay. it's, um, it's complicated because there are a lot of assumptions that are embedded in those water supplies. So if you look at your food and you look at what went into it, we have a lot of debate right now about how much water almonds use or how much water is in a cow and whether or not if you change your eating habits, you can help address some of the, the water shortages that are out there. I think that's a really important consideration because you have personal choice about what kinds of foods and where. But the f 
agricultural side of the water supply is also very driven by economics. So you have markets like in China that are actually driving a lot of the agricultural choices that we make here in California. And so I'm very interested in that dimension, but I'm actually much more interested in the choices we make in our homes and how we actually use water and having some sense of relationship for where the water comes from. I think we forget about that and the places that are dependent on the supplies that we have the privilege of using. Anna McLeck, how should people think more holistically about energy, food, and water? So I agree with everything Martha said, but at the same time, I think it is important for us to think not just about the water that we're putting on our lawns and the water that we're using in our toilets and, and uh, brushing our teeth and so on. I, I think it's important to think about our, our entire water footprint in the same way that we've started thinking about our own carbon footprint. And in, in that way, a lot of that water is being used in different ways, and food is certainly one of them. I, I mean, a pound of beef takes four times as much water as a pound of chicken, and a pound of chicken takes four times as much water as a pound of corn. And by choosing where we eat on the food chain, we are making choices about how much water we are personally responsible for in the same way as whether we choose to have a cactus garden or a green lawn in our house. And I think that, that it's true that because we have our water bill every month, it's much easier to be conscious of that aspect. But the, the food aspect is important as well, as is the energy aspect, whether it's due to the, the high water footprint of biofuels or whether it's due to how water is involved in making electricity or a variety of other aspects. And so what I would really love for people to become more conscious of as we're thinking about the water coming about out of our tap is all of the taps that were turned on throughout the state and throughout the country to make everything that we use day-to-day -day available to us. Martha Davis, you're here representing Earth Island Institute, but you also work for a water utility in what is a farming area? Or? Actually, very urban area. Urban area? Okay. Yeah. Inland Empire shows what I know about the Inland Empire. Um, but th there isn't a whole lot of labeling for people to make these kinds of choices, right? You can't really, you don't really know the embedded water, so it's hard to, to, for consumers to make these kinds of choices. I think that's completely true, and it's one of the reasons why I've, I've often thought about how do you help people understand something like, we take water from Shasta Reservoir. It comes all the way down through the Sacramento River, it goes into the delta. There, it gets pumped out of the delta. It then flows through an aqueduct to the base of the Tehachapis. It gets pumped up and over Tehachapis, the equivalent energy usage as you have for desalination. It, it actually generates some power as it goes down into Southern California. It goes through a series of reservoirs. From those reservoirs, it gets pumped again. It gets treated. That's another energy-intensive element of the, of, the, of the chain, it comes to your house. And what do we do with it? I know somebody who has looked at a leak in his toilet. He was losing 200 gallons per day in a running toilet. So if you think about that water resource that came all that distance only to just run through the toilet and then it went into the wastewater system where it got treated again at a high energy cost, to then be released out into the ocean. And so I look at that whole chain and I think about the way in which water and energy is connected and the choices which we, we make on the end use of these supplies have huge implications for how we use energy in the state as well as how we use water. 
And, and I think that's a great example because it, it, the relationship works in both directions. So as Martha was saying, you need a tremendous amount of energy to get water to where it needs to go or to desalinate it or to treat it. But at the same time, we also use an incredible amount of water to make energy, whether it's through obvious things like water for irrigation for biofuels or hydroelectricity, but also in electrical power generation, water is an integral part of that process as well. So this is why it's called this nexus, because energy is needed for water and water is needed for energy. And us using large amounts of both is putting a stress on both systems. So let's think about having a, a summer picnic uh, and you want to have some guests over. Should you buy paper plates and cups or should you use the glassware and, and then think about washing them? Anna McLack, what do you do if you're having a party? You go for the paper, you go for the glassware. and, and Invite and them to bring their own bottle. <laughs> you export your water. Not plastic yeah. bottle. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. Or, or, or like come that. quenched. <laughs> water will not be served. Bring your own water. Right, bring your own. But, I, but there's a lot of water that goes into making paper, a lot yes. of chlorine that goes into making paper, a lot of, again, embedded, embedded water. Martha Davis? A lot of chemicals that go into it as well. I, you know, I wish there was a perfect answer to all of this. I think my answer to it is I look at waste streams. And so I tend to be in the favor of reusable things, and I'm willing to take responsibility for washing them. So that's my answer to the question. And in a perfect world, that water would get recycled somewhere, exactly. right? Uh, I, w- I would do it at, well, or even I can, do, I can recycle it in my yard. I mean, the thing about washing things is that you can take the gray water in California and legally use it again. So I have all sorts of systems rigged up. I'm sure you all do, too, where you take the water from the sink because it doesn't get hot fast enough, and you're putting it in a water bottle, and I put it in the dog's dish, and then I water my favorite plant. But... Those kinds of choices tell you two things. Number one, that if you care, there's a lot of things that you can do to really stretch and reuse multiple times water supplies, both in your home and then my agency does do recycled water. So we're treating it and then we're reusing it again and trying to get as many um, uses out of the water supply as possible. And, And I think we just have bigger choices about the waste streams that are also associated with the use of water so nothing's unconnected. And, and I think the same way that we think about recycling of, of products and trying to keep them out of the garbage dumps and making sure we're recycling them, the same mentality needs to come with the way in which we use water and the choices that make sure that we're really thoughtful about where these water resources are coming from and how efficiently they're being used. If you're just joining <laughs> us, Martha Davis is board vice president of the Earth Island Institute. We also have with us today at Climate One Anna Micklack from the Carnegie Institution for Science. Anna? I just want to follow up. I think in every situation, there's a decision to be made. And in some cases, it can become overwhelming, paper cups versus washing a mug. This is why I think looking at our water use at a higher level can be helpful. And Martha can speak to that even more than I can. But if you think of the municipal water use, over half of the water on average that we use is outside water use. And so rather than necessarily having to worry about the small-scale water choices, we can have a big impact by making a small reduction in those big chunks of the overall pie of our water use, whether it be not watering lawns or through food choices or a variety of of other things. And I think it it can become overwhelming if you feel that throughout the day there's a thousand decision points about how to use or not use water, and maybe focusing on those few larger chunks where a small fractional reduction can really have a big impact, simplifies 
the equation a little bit. Martha Davis, are you giving cash for grass? In yes, the Empire? we are. Um, and it's certainly through the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. They've invested over $500 million this last year in cash for grass programs. We were one of the earliest agencies to offer that type of a program. In our area, outdoor water use is 60 to 65% of our residential water usage. So we have very strongly encourage people to switch to native plants or California-friendly plants. I'm all for lawns where people are actually using them, but a lot of places people aren't using them. They're really decorative at this point, and they're kind of an anachronism. I would prefer, and this goes back to some of the climate change and how things are connected, I would prefer to make my yard part of an environment that welcomes the native plants, birds, butterflies, bringing back into the city some of nature that we've lost through urbanism is really important as part of this bigger picture of how we make choices and how we can kind of coexist and bring nature back into these otherwise very intensely urban areas. If I might, I want to give one example from my Mono Lake days. So I was executive director of the Mono Lake Committee and that campaign for Mono Lake. And I remember walking through West Los Angeles and coming across a leak, a leak that was so large, I could have kayaked three blocks without touching bottom. And I knew that water was coming from Mono Lake. And for me, it encapsulated why the choices that we make, this was simply a large uh, institutional property that hadn't checked its water sprinklers. It was on a weekend. Nobody was paying attention. But that much water was running down the street. And I think even now in this drought, you can look at places and see where irrigation is going over into the streets, and that's creating water quality problems for receiving waters. We haven't quite made choices about the types of, of landscaping that could be much more efficient. And so I really think that there's a personal choice in this that connects us back to the places where this water comes from and makes us much more intimately involved in making choices that can help address climate change in the bigger picture. I want to go to our lightning round where we ask our uh, guests uh, simple yes or no questions. Uh, Anna Miklak, uh, yes or no, one way to beat water restrictions is to take a bath at bottled water from Costco. Yes or no? <laughs> <clears throat> Yes, but you could just shower with a friend, which would ah, be a better, well, that, a better solution. But that could be a longer shower. Depends. Okay. Um, Martha Davis, naming and shaming is an effective way to reform water pigs. Yes. Do you do that in your district? No, we don't. Um, but but I, I do think that the some of the really intriguing um, information that's coming out about where neighbors can compare how their water use compares with the others in their neighborhood has been very effective at helping people understand how much water they're actually using and how much more they could save. Probably one of the underlying issues with shaming and naming is that most of us really don't know how much water we're actually using or how much we should be using. And if we knew what we should be using, I think we'd be a lot better at conserving. Anna McLack, almonds get a bad rap. They are not as bad as many people think compared to other sources of protein, yes or no? If you are looking at protein for protein, you are much better off eating your veggies. But if you're looking at dollars per gallon, almonds are actually pr 
pretty efficient since they cost a lot of money. So it all wow. depends what metric you're using. Okay. Uh, Martha Davis, water embedded in a pound of beef is how much? I don't know. 1,800 gallons, according to National Geographic. Wow. 127 gallons in a pound of goat. So think about <laughs> those goat burgers. They probably sell them here in Berkeley, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Anna, uh, what TV star was recently fined for stealing water from a public hydrant and trucking it to a 60-acre ranch near Los Angeles? I know exactly who you're talking about, but I'm completely terrible at names. <laughs> so I cannot... I, so if you said Magnum P.I. or... Yes. Yeah, do, Tom I get, do I get credit? Tom Selleck? Tom Selleck, there, there you, you go. go. Oh. See, I could have gotten um, the beef question. If, <laughs> there, there, yeah, no, it's who you asked. Uh, I was going to ask you, Martha uh, Davis, how much he was fined. That I don't know, but I know he negotiated his fine. <laughs> $21,000. Well, that's the end of our lightning round. How did they do? What do you think? I think they did pretty well. <laughs> Let's talk about what climate change may bring us, Martha Davis, in the form of severe storms. What's that going to mean for the state water system? Well, uh, if I mean, obviously, we're hoping that we get more rain um, in this drought. But what we're worried about is the intensity of the storms. And if you know, you can look back at some of the events of this year, and you can see where um, really intense cloud bursts have uh, uh, taken out some portions of uh, Interstate 10 on down in Southern California. It's the intensity of the precipitation and the volume of the flow that then has the capacity to swamp our existing flood control systems. And with that comes a lot of water quality problems in addition to the infrastructure damage. And then from the water supply side, you know, we've tried to very carefully build our systems to capture the water up in the mountains. But when we come to our urban areas, we've actually made the mistake of trying to shoot the water as fast as we can out to the ocean. And so you get two types of problems. You're losing the water supply that you would normally capture from the mountains. You get these intense flooding events. And then in our urban areas, we're just shedding the water as fast as we can towards the ocean. So it's a, it's a big mess. And it's a lot of infrastructure that's going to have to be modified over the years if these more intense storms are what we're in for. Anna McLeck, you look globally, volatility, unpredictability in the global distribution of water in a climate-disrupted world. Right. So, so what you're saying is exactly right in that not only are we expecting shifts in the total amount of water that different regions get, but we're expecting more intense storms to happen more frequently. And that makes things very difficult both for the water supply and, as Martha was saying, for water quality, because when you have these intense storms, you tend to flush both pollutants and nutrients into waters, which damage those ecosystems, but also potentially make that water of a low enough quality that it's not useful for the purposes that we ultimately need it for. So these are, the, even though the amount of water overall on the planet is not changing, where it is and when it comes and what form it comes in, is really what affects our ability to use it. And so these intense storms make it much more difficult, given our current system, to handle what's coming. And warming water, we've heard about the Great Lakes affected by algal blooms. What's that going to do to freshwater supplies, Anna? So the Great Lakes are an interesting case study because they've, they have had issues with water quality for decades now. 
it's become very, uh, it's come to people's awareness a lot more, particularly because last year the Toledo water supply was shut down completely for two or three days because toxins were found in water supply originating from the bloom of this cyanobacterium. And what's happening in the Great Lakes is two things in combination. So you have this intense agricultural use with increasing use of corn, which takes a lot of fertilizer, so a lot of nutrients. And at the same time, you have more of these intense storms that are flushing those nutrients into the water and feeding these algal blooms. And then in other years, you might have very dry drought conditions, and that's leading to increased dead zones in the lake. And so all of these systems are changing at the same time. And so you have these local land management patterns that are interacting with global scale climate change patterns. And ultimately, we're just seeing conditions that are fundamentally different from what we've seen before, both in terms of water quantity and also in terms of water quality. Is there anywhere that has real water security? If we want to think about buy a little land somewhere, uh, Martha Davis, where, where would we go? I'd stay here in California. I don't think the question is whether or not we're going to have rain and a water supply. It's a choice about how we manage our way through these systems. My agency is thinking about it in terms of not reliability but resiliency. And we're looking at combinations of strategies with a much greater focus on local water supplies. One thing that's interesting about the way we've developed water in the West is in the 20th century, we were brilliant engineers in designing systems that managed to take water from long distances and bring it into our urban, into our agricultural areas. And for many decades, we've actually neglected the local water supplies that we have, the groundwater supplies that are under our feet in many areas. My area is one of the larger groundwater basins in Southern California. It's the ability to treat and reuse water using recycled water. We're going to have discussions about recycled water going to what we call direct potable reuse. We're talking about desal. But none of these supplies by themselves is a silver bullet, just in the same way that conservation is not a silver bullet. It's the way in which they fit together and how do we do climate-resilient water planning that really emphasizes being efficient as a baseline and then adding in and feathering in how do we take advantage of the wet years when they come, how do we store water in different places in anticipation of significant droughts, and how we do a better job of managing all of those things in combination. Martha Davis is board vice president of the Earth Island Institute. We're talking about water supply at Climate One. Our other guest is Anna Miklak from the Carnegie Institution for Science. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join the conversation using our Twitter handle, at Climate One, and listen to podcasts on our website, climateone.org. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. In your experience, have places, ge geographies, that have experienced severe droughts and started these conversations, maintained them, if a heavy rain year or a set of heavy rain years came along afterward? Is your opinion that this will go away, or is this something like the civil rights movement that's, that's being started and will, will perpetuate itself? If, it, if El Nino comes, we're back to um, the cushy lawns, big lush lawns. I, Martha I, Davis? I think there's no question. There's a fear that we'll go back to business as usual as if this didn't make, didn't make a difference. But I don't think that's really going to happen. The depth of this drought and how dramatically it's impacted all areas of the state makes it a game changer. The fact that we can look at other countries that have had really intense droughts and had to shift dramatically their infrastructure, that's a game changer too. We've always seen 
strong conservation following a drought. And over the years, there's always been a little bit going back up again in terms of demand. But the level of, of, of water usage, at least in the urban areas, has always been lower than, than what it was before the drought. So if you look at the 77 drought and you look at the 88 through 94 drought and you look at the, you know, the 2008-2010 drought and now the one that we're currently in, you can actually track in water agencies how the amount of water use has dropped after each drought and stayed lower. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how the conversation goes, and I think our fear is we could forget, but I don't think we're going to forget this one very quickly, and I think there are other issues that are going to come up related to climate change that are going to reinforce the lessons from this drought when it's over. Last question. All right. On the subject of ideas and solutions here, being in the Bay Area and being part of the startup community, I'm wondering more and more what role do you see the startup community and technology having in uh, presenting solutions and helping to solve some of the water problems? Again, we're going to touch that on the second half, but if anyone would like to talk about startups and innovation, Anna McClay? I think one of the most interesting ideas that, that I've heard about just in our conversation prior to the show is this idea of making the water bills more transparent to the people who are actually receiving them. So enabling people to be more consciously aware of the water that they're using, in that case, within the home, but more broadly, similar things are, are possible. I think if you, if you stop the average person on the street and you ask them, how much water did you personally use in the last week, not just in your home, but overall, people might be off by an order of magnitude. And so I think there's the, this information to consumer aspect is something that I'm personally very interested in, and, and I'm sure there are many others as well. That ends our first segment today at Climate One. We've been listening to Anna Miklak from the Carnegie Institution for Science and Martha Davis is board vice president at the Earth Island Institute. Let's thank them for coming to Climate One. Thank you. Thank you. And now here's a Climate One Minute. Is water a human right or an engine for economic progress? Peter Glick, president of the Pacific Institute and author of The World's Water, says it can be both if we strike the right balance. There was a tremendous debate worldwide about this, and in 2010, the UN formally declared a legal human right to water and sanitation. It was a great thing. And now there's a lot of debate about what that means, how you implement it for companies, for, for countries, for individuals. But there's clearly a human right to basic needs for water and sanitation. But water is also an economic good. It's fundamental to our, our corporate operations, to the, to the production of food. Uh, we ought to price water. There's a big debate about pricing of water and water markets. Balancing the human right to water and the economic aspects of water is another of these challenges in the water world. We want to price water because we want it to be used effectively and efficiently. But you don't want to price water in a way that makes it inaccessible to the poorest populations who need water no matter what, no matter their ability to pay. And that's a, a, an interesting challenge. That was Peter Glick, president and co-founder of the Pacific Institute, speaking with Climate One in 2014. Now here's Greg Dalton with the second half of our live program from the Brower Center in Berkeley. In our second segment today, we'll explore how the drought is changing the way water and money flows in the western United States. Money's coming into the water sector from Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Is that good news or something to be treated with suspicion? How should cities change the way they manage and think about water? 
We're joined now by David Sedlak, co-director of the UC Berkeley Water Center. Abram Lusgarten is a reporter with ProPublica who's been covering water in the West. And Tamin Peckett is chair of Imagine H2O. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, David Sedlak, I want to just uh, start briefly. You have an answer to the uh, glass cup or paper cup for for the garden picnic uh, and have done some math on that. So share that with us. Oh, gee, Greg. Well, I I didn't know you were going to pull this out. I I was telling you before we started here that I did an exercise with my students a number of years ago about whether it made sense to uh, drink your, your water out of a ceramic mug or a styrofoam cup. And when you do the calculation, it turns out that it's okay to use a ceramic cup, provided you use it about 500 times. Otherwise, it's better off to get a, a styrofoam cup every day and throw it in the trash. And these are the things that are like counterintuitive when we think about the amount of embedded energy in a product in that case, or if we think about the amount of embedded water in our food. It's a complicated story, and it doesn't always come out the way it feels intuitively. And I think that's, that's some, a, a, a moral that we should take away from all these discussions about water and water use. It's complicated, and sometimes it's counterintuitive. So the headline on the blog is Berkeley's professor says, use styrofoam and throw it away, right? Okay, I just want everyone to get that, all right? The the answer is to use a ceramic cup and never wash it. Okay. (laughs) Um, I want to talk about the localization of of, uh, water supplies. We have a change that's going on in energy where people are getting their energy closer to where they're using it, whether it's from their rooftop or something like that. And you think that we ought to go local on water because we've been shipping at long distances and we ought to get water closer to where we're using it. Is that right? Well, and the fact of the matter is there's no more water to be had from a distance. So we're not going <coughs> to build more dams. We're not going to build more massive water importation projects. There aren't any more aquifers to discover. The next streams that we tap are the streams that are in our backyard. So whether that's um, maintaining our groundwater and making sure the stream of water that flows down the gutter doesn't go out to the ocean, but goes into the mm-hmm. groundwater. The stream of water that flows down the sewer, after it's treated, it gets treated and goes back into the water supply. And it's not a stream at all, but the, the, the ocean, the seawater that's out there, is there for us if we really need it. And there will be cases where it's more attractive economically to desalinate seawater than build more imported water projects. So these local water supplies... Uh, stormwater capture and use, water recycling, and seawater desalination are our next untapped water sources. Tim and Peckett, uh, desalination, there's a lot of big money going into that, billion-dollar plants. Do you think that that's, that's promising and profitable? Something that David just said rings true to me, which is it depends where you are. If you're in the Middle East where energy is really cheap and water is really scarce, desalination is going to be part of the solution. If you're in places like California, where you're in a different circumstance with the price of energy versus the availability of water, I think most locations will treat it as part of a portfolio of solutions, but it is more expensive on a per-gallon basis than efficiency or recycling and reuse. Abram Lesgarten, you've been covering the the Colorado, did a fabulous series for ProPublica on the Colorado. That's one of the big streams that doesn't reach the ocean anymore. So what's happening in the Colorado? The Colorado raises issues that I think uh, 
you know, kind of go back to the conversation we we're having before about whether we're suffering through environmental impacts or uh, fundamental mismanagement. So uh, the Colorado uh, is a river supply that uh, supports 40 million Americans and 15% of the nation's food crops. And the seven states that share it have divided up an amount of water that they estimated runs in it. And that number is 16 and a half million acre feet. And over the last 100 years, not the last five years of intense drought or the last 20 years of drought in the Colorado Basin, but over the last 100 years, uh, the river has flowed with about 14.8 million acre feet. So right away, institutionally and from a government and management perspective, we are starting with a phenomenally large deficit of water. Uh, we're essentially managing an amount of water that doesn't exist. And uh, so that's, a, that's the, the, the underlying dynamic of the Colorado River Basin. I think it's a, it's a dynamic that's true in, in many water-scarce regions. Uh, you have to start by, having an, by attaining an honest estimate of the water supply that you're working with and then uh, uh, allocate that to agricultural use, to urban use, uh, to, to, its, to meet its many demands in a way that, that's realistic and matches our budget. I mean, um, it's really no different than any of us going out with a credit card and and uh, you know, spending freely when, when we don't have the money to support our purchases. A lot of people in cities point the finger at ag. Is that true, that the overdrawing is largely ag, or is it more nuanced than that, Abram? Uh, it's always more nuanced, uh, but it's true that uh, agriculture uses about 80% of the water supply in the Colorado River Basin. Uh, the ratio is pretty similar in, uh, in California. Uh, the, uh, you know, that water use is, is spread amongst a great you know, number of, of responsible parties. Uh, we all eat uh, food that's raised with that water. Um, but there, I, I've observed incredible inefficiencies in how that water is transported, uh, how it's used to irrigate crops. Uh, many of, of the farmlands uh, in the Colorado River Basin are still flood irrigated, um, sometimes with an amount of water that would you know, stack up to four or five feet high, uh, where it all poured over, over a field at once. Um, and, uh, and, and, and another segment of my reporting is, has focused on the legal structure that gives uh, these farmers agricultural uh, interests the right to use their water, and that those laws, which go back about a hundred years or so, actually incentivize overuse of that water. Uh, they disincentivize the conservation of the of that water because they basically jeopardize uh, farmers' rights to use that water in the future. Tim and Pickett, what, how do those distorted incentives affect the the financial opportunities in water? Does it make it hard to get into water uh, for capital to flow into water because it's such a convoluted world? Well, certainly, if there wasn't so much distortion of incentives, the financial markets for water would be more transparent and would be easier to pursue and capitalize on. Even in the current construct, there are plenty of wonderful opportunities. But when you think about disincentives to conserve water, really it boils down to you're going to invest in a company. That company needs to sell a customer on a solution and the customer's motivations and demands determine how well that company is going to do. And so there are a number of solutions that one would wish proliferated more throughout agricultural users of water. For example, soil moisture sensors or better irrigation techniques. And to the extent that customers of those solutions, farmers, have better incentives to adopt them, as an investor, you're going to do better investing in companies that sell them. I saw, I think, an article that you wrote about one called Aqua Spy, which sounds like a James Bond movie, but it's actually uh, some kind of moisture sensor. It sounds like a cool thing. I mean, uh, is that going to be promising to sort of better manage uh, agricultural water? 
There are a number of companies, and Aquaspy is one of them. Aquaspy actually originated in Australia when it was suffering from the, doubt, from the drought that make different ways of getting intelligence on irrigating as you are in a farm setting, which is a major use of water in California and beyond. That company makes probes that go into the soil and determine salinity, soil moisture level, and provide an intelligence to the farm, setting to the farmer so that he or she can determine when to water. They have actually been adopted, and there is a reasonable rate of penetration among farms, but it's been slower than one would like, not because many of those solutions don't work, but because it's just hard to sell in a fragmented marketplace without huge demand drivers forcing growers to adopt solutions like that. David Sedlak, I know you focus on uh, mainly urban. Um, let's talk about urban success stories. Who's doing uh, really well in terms of managing their urban water? If you were to look in California and say, that's the future, where would the future, what would you point to? Well, many of us point to Inland Empire, the utility that Martha represents, and Orange County Water District as the places that have really um, been the trendsetters in California in the urban water sector. And that hurts in Northern California, but the reality is that Orange County's done more than Northern California on water in the last 20 years, yes? Well, well, we were blessed by our grandparents having a lot of foresight to build us imported water systems that would provide us with an ample supply of water. They and stole it from Hetch Hetchy, but yeah, okay. Right? Yeah, 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 okay. They but, stole it from Yosemite. They did okay. a better job stealing their water than the folks in Southern California, especially the ones that developed later. So Orange County and Inland Empire grew later and didn't have the senior rights that Los Angeles had. So they've had to be more creative if they wanted to keep growing and expanding their populations. And so they've been the ones who had to deal with this question of a local water supply first. And they've done it in a very elegant manner that involves managing a local water supply portfolio and building in those uh, conservation and stormwater capture and water reuse along with their imported water supply. We saw, some people saw uh, Leslie Stahl drink a cup of former pee on, on, uh, on 60 Minutes. Uh, that sort of thing, that the toilet to tap got a bad rap, but it's actually quite efficient. makes a lot of sense. Tim and Peckett, do you see capital going into recycling water? Is that a promising business, or is that something that's just going to be for governments? It is a promising business. Water recycling and reuse is one of the fastest growing segments within the water industry, and it makes sense. Historically, we've used the exact same water for almost all use cases. We treat water to drinking water quality standards and then use it for things like watering our lawns. It is growing and it makes sense that it is growing uh, and, and places like Orange County I think are leading the way in fact Really, what they need is a little bit better marketing spin than toilet to tap to get the broader <laughs> Right, <out>. right. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. I believe it's called uh, purified water. That sounds better. Yeah. Ron Luskarten, uh, what do you think of the, all this private for-profit motivation coming into water, which is uh, the UN has declared there's a uh, sort of a human right to water. California has legally enshrined uh, the personal use of water for humans and, and the ecosystem uh, use of water, uh, like your perspective on sort of the, the increased investment and commercialization of water. Is it necessary or is it, should we keep a wary eye on it? I'm trying to figure out what I think of it right now uh, through, I mean, through some, some research I'm currently doing. But, you know, one of the things, um, I mean, first of all, it's, it's sort of obvious that, that capital investment flows towards anything that's becoming increasingly scarce, and so it makes sense on, on that level. Um, uh, but one of the things that I observe is, is really like a, a, you know, a largely uh, uh, government-driven failure to, 
to implement other solutions that might uh, help the water dynamic, which is to oversimplify the tension between the agricultural water holders and, and the urban interests. Um, so if government can't uh, revise its policies, enact incentives, uh, change its management plans in a way that solves, uh, redistribute some of that water, solve some of the water uh, tensions and scarcity problems that we're seeing, then um, market solutions can come in uh, and fill a vacuum. Uh, so for better or worse, whether that happens because it's because of a failure of government leadership or there's another opportunity that's identified, uh, I think it is the, the world is moving in that direction where there's going to be some sort of, of market-based solution that tries to alleviate this, this water scarcity tension. Uh, so one of the things I'm looking at is uh, whether whether uh, water will be sold uh, by agricultural interest to the cities increasingly. It, it happens in some cases now. Um, there's a, a new trend towards leasing some of that water on a temporary basis, which allows the water to stay attached to the land but, uh, but move towards the cities in those years when they need it most. And those kind of solutions seem like they have a lot of potential. There's a lot of pitfalls with the right regulation, I think, that they, that they could and likely will be a big part of the solutions we see coming. There was a story recently about the Airbnb of water, right? So people can kind of lease, farmers can lease out their water temporarily without permanently uh, giving up their rights. Tim and Peckett, are we going to see uh, more market-based pricing in water? And will that drive more capital investment into water? Yes and yes. In the, in the conversation around water pricing, you would like it to be a simple answer. But in every specific location, water pricing is dictated not just by what you would like to happen currently, but by the historical setting in which the water utility, if we're in an urban context, grew up. Because they have to pay for the fixed cost of their infrastructure. And they have to cover their basic costs. What we are seeing is both an increase in the marginal rates of water and the last gallon that you use and an improvement in the structure of water pricing so that you have more flexible tiers so that a rate system in and of itself can recognize that there's a certain amount of water that should be cheap, and if you are using it on a discretionary basis, it should be expensive. I want to go to our uh, lightning round here and ask David Sedlick, uh, gray water is hyped and may even be detrimental to urban water systems, yes or no? Depends who's using it. I, I think gray, gray water is a, a wonderful solution, but it's, it's not for everyone. Abram Lesgarten, Wall Street vultures are circling the parched valleys of California, waiting to swoop in and make a kill, yes or no? <laughs> uh, I'm observing that to some degree. I don't know if that's the overarching <laughs> trend, but it exists. Putting words in your mouth. David Sedlak, the drought is worse than most citizens, the California drought is worse than most California citizens realize. Nope. <laughs> Do you want to know why? Sure. <laughs> I mean, any time happy news, any time you can bring happy news, because um, I, I think that that our cities are in pretty good shape. You know, there's no talk of severe rationing or the faucets running out in any city in California, and that has to be seen as a victory for the planning that our cities and our urban water districts have done. Maybe not the same thing for our farmers. But for our cities, it's a real success story that doesn't get enough attention. What about 2016 if there's no El Nino? We'll probably be fine then, too. Good. All right. We're going to 
keep that, keep that in mind. I'll take a long shower tonight. Um, Abram <laughs> Lusgarten, California has 400 commodity crops. The government should not play favorites among them. You're asking for my opinion. Um, uh, it doesn't seem to make sense for the government to encourage crops that are using the most water and don't have a viable market at a time when that water is increasingly valuable. Tam and Peckett, there's a human right to water, and it should be treated differently than other commodities. I think water is both a right and a good. I think that there is a subsistence amount that is a right, and beyond that, it's a good. And it should be treated from other commodities because it is different at that base level. And beyond that, we need more market-based approaches to how we deal with water. That ends our lightning round. How'd they do? I think they did pretty well. They did. Um, <clears throat> Uh, David Sedlak, how should California read? You said that California's done pretty well, but we've heard earlier that, that cities are kind of designed like roofs and gutters and get the water away as quick as possible. How should cities in California beyond rethink and redesign themselves to manage the water that, that falls on people's heads, falls on them, and then flows through them? Well, again, this is another question that has to be answered as being very place-specific. So in California, we have Mediterranean hydrology, which means that it rains really hard a few times a year. So the solutions for us are not the same solutions that work in Philadelphia or Melbourne and Sydney or, or somewhere like, like the East Coast. It, it's really um, something that we have to capture those big rainstorms in large capture basins and get it into the ground as quickly as possible. So while a lot of people see green infrastructure and bioswales and, and roof gardens and things like that as the way to go, for California, I think we're going to see things like buying up and repurposing old gravel quarries and sand quarries and routing all the stormwater for a neighborhood into those as a temporary storage basin while we try to get it into the ground. And that's happening near Burbank Airport, yeah, this, San Fernando? Sun Valley and Los Angeles Department of mm -hmm. Water and Power has some very interesting demonstration projects that they're building now to take this concept of centralized stormwater capture and recharge. And there's a lot of open space and public lands where it's possible to build these kinds of systems where instead of putting our rainwater runoff in the L.A. River or some sort of uh, armored flood control channel, we capture it somewhere and hold on to it and then get it into the ground. Because it doesn't rain uh, a quarter of an inch at a time here. It rains five or six or seven inches in big storms, and that's the stuff we have to get if we want to augment our water supply. And climate scientists say with atmospheric rivers and that sort of thing, we can expect fewer storms so with some really big punches. Tim and Peckett, what could California learn from Israel, Australia, other countries? California is lagging behind some of those countries in suffering from drought-related issues. And I think that they can learn a couple things. One of them is innovation is a necessity in overcoming challenges to water management. Australia and Israel, Singapore and others who face these problems are hotbeds of water innovation. And many of the technologies that we deploy in the US and California and beyond were originated there because the need was greatest there before we felt it here. And those countries in various ways supported the development of innovation and business innovation to provide technologies to customers who needed them to better manage water. California can learn from that. Brom Lesgarten, you've been talking to farmers. Are they looking for innovation? Are they looking for technology? I know it's a broad generalization farmers. There's a lot of them. There's big corporate farmers, and there's some small mom-and-pop ones. 
but maybe from your travels and reporting, farmers looking to innovation, to technology, to, to help them? Um, to generalize, I'd say no. Uh, I'd say the farmers I've talked to are cognizant of, of the constraints and, and the demand for the water that they have. Uh, generally, farming isn't a fantastic business to be in for most of them, and, um, and their margins aren't so hot. And uh, the kind of solutions that we're talking about, technological solutions, have a lot of potential but are expensive. Uh, so I talked to a lot of farmers who would be willing to try them, um, many who are moving towards things like drip irrigation, pivot irrigation systems, but they, uh, they cost an enormous amount of money. And uh, I mentioned before the disincentives uh, to adopting some of, some of those technologies, and I think that's what really stands in the way of like, technological solutions, is uh, laws which essentially say, well, I talked to a lot of farmers who are concerned that should they implement technological solutions that advance their water use, uh, they won't use enough to maintain, to basically prove up their usage to protect their water rights. Um, so that's one kind of legal barrier. Uh, another is a cost barrier, and there's potentially incentives or programs that can address that. Um, but on the whole, farmers I talked to are not looking to go out and invest uh, substantially in ways to use less water. The perverse use it or lose it uh, incentive. I'm, I'm worried that if I save a lot, of, if I'm successful saving water, I might lose it. D David said, like, that's twisted. Well, but there's another way to look at it. You know, we talked about the 80% to ag, 20% for cities. If you look at where the economic activity is in California, it's 2% ag, 98% cities. So the money is in the cities. The potential economic damage of not having a reliable water supply falls in the cities. And the people who will ultimately pay for our water solutions live in the cities. And so looking to the farmers is not the place to go, because if the farmers do it, it's probably going to be paid for by the cities anyway. So we're seeing the big investments, the innovation in water, coming from this smaller piece of the urban water pie. But that pie is what supports the California lifestyle that we all want to have. Tim and Pickett, I think I just heard David say that if you're successful selling technology to farmers, the, the people in the city are going to pay for it. Did I hear this or that? Yeah? I have a slightly different twist. <laughs> on, <laughs> shockingly, on, on, on farmers' receptivity to water technology and innovation. And what I have seen is growers being resistant to being sold solutions whose value proposition is to save water for some of the reasons that our group just discussed. However, they've been very receptive to solutions that provide better ways of managing their farm and their resources. And if one of those happens to be better water management, wonderful. As an example, there are software packages for business intelligence that have grown rapidly in distribution to farmers. And they don't go to farmers and say, buy this because you're going to save a lot of water. They say, buy it because you'll more efficiently and with less effort manage your resources. And it, in the end, has the benefit of giving them intelligence on irrigating intelligently. I talked to some homeowners in Marin recently who got smart water meters. You can watch their water usage by the hour. And it's amazing how it becomes a, a kind of a competition. They talk about it. They, you know, they're checking their water use at 11 o'clock at night. Oh, how much water did I use today, right? I mean, geeky stuff. But it's amazing how that catches on in a social group when they have uh, new visibility and information into what used to be a black hole. In Marin. In Marin. <laughs> <laughs> 
If you're just joining us, we're talking about water at Climate One, and our guests are David Sedlak, co-director of the UC Berkeley Water Center. Abram Lesgarten is a reporter with ProPublica, and Tamant Peckett is chair of Imagine H2O. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. I'm wondering how much the investment community is working to influence regulation um, and policy, and I'm thinking of it from the climate perspective and energy, how much the investment community worked on regulatory issues and what's happening in that in the water realm. Tim Beckett. I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that in general, there has been less of a push for regulation and policy that would support business innovation in water than in energy and other comparable markets. Um, Imagine H2O, who has seen 450 startup companies come through its program, has recognized the need for some improvement in that, and we are announcing a policy program to try to engender some more innovation policy in the next month. In some ways, uh, water is at least 10 years behind energy in, in lots of those areas. Next question. Welcome. My name is Kim Ryle. Obviously, data and transparency is quite, quite important to the drought situation. Um, the Central Valley aquifers are being pumped by agriculture at unprecedented rates. How accurately does the state know the volume of any aquifer and whose responsibility is it to know? There's a new groundwater law, David Selleck, in California that's supposed to give us visibility into that. What do we know? Well, the groundwater law is a great step forward, and it's the, the start of a longer conversation of creating a framework that's like the other 49 states for regulating groundwater. And then with new technologies like the satellite technology that NASA's been pushing, we can understand more about the aquifers without having to go and measure the water level in every well. But the truth of the matter is that there are a lot of people who have an interest in making sure that no one knows how much water they pumped and where the water's going. And that's going to be um, our challenge until this new groundwater regulation develops and the ones that possibly um, follow that to get more transparency in water use. Next question. Welcome. Um, what are we doing about vulnerable communities, communities that don't have potable water here in California? And who's thinking about planning for and preparing? for water as a security issue, um, particularly for those who are most needy. David Sedlak, there's native populations in California that don't have, are just completely out of water. What, what about the vulnerable? It's not just native populations. It's, it's small towns and communities that don't have the same wherewithal to invest in, in new technologies or to bring water in from a distance. And I, I think this is one of those situations where we have to realize the most vulnerable people in a time of drought are the people with the least water security, and that's exactly what this question was about. I think it's an, an obligation that the state has to look after its population, and sometimes this means subsidizing and building projects to bring water in and not asking the ratepayers to pay it because they may not have the economic means. Will we also see migration? People, mm -hmm. rather than bringing water to people, move people to water? It's a great question. I mean, if land has value, people will fight that tooth and nail because it makes the land valueless if the folks get kicked off the land. So I think first we'll see um, political calls to look after those communities and bring in the water. And then um, it's kind of a property taking to tell someone that they can't live on a piece of land because it can't provide water. But it may be something that's in our drier future. 
One thing that's also in the future is the consolidation and merger of water agencies in California. The, some of the emergency powers the governor has is to, is to merge water com companies, agencies, because the water system in California is extremely fragmented, and that's happened in other situations. We have to end it there. Our thanks to David Sedlak, co-director of the UC Berkeley Water Center, Abram Luskarten, a reporter with ProPublica, and Tamin Peckett, chair of Imagine H2O. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our audience here at the Brower Center in Berkeley and listening online and on air. Thanks for coming. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.